0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. You are the God of the if
1: you
0: Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted and honored today to be joined by my friend Rick Pino, who I met a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, in Jerusalem. And Rick is the founder of the Heart of David movement, which is a parachurch ministry that's passionate about seeing Jesus glorified through day and night worship. They manifest this through internships, schools, conferences, summits, and they're famous for their music. Rick is a world-famous Christian musician who brings his love for God to the world through music in concerts all over the world and, of course, in digital means as well. We met in Jerusalem through Eagle's Wings, and uh, Rick gave the most magnificent concert on the Spanish steps in Jerusalem on that morning before Shabbat. And it's something that uh, everyone who was there will remember uh, forever as just a beautiful Israel moment. So, Rick, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband.
1: Mark, I am so honored to be here with you, man. I, I actually can't believe you invited me on. I'm, I'm just so flattered. Thank you so much.
0: No, I, I can't wait for this conversation. So of all the passages to choose from in the Bible, you chose 1 Samuel sixteen seven. So perhaps we could begin by you explaining what that passage is, what its context is, and why it's so meaningful to you. Absolutely. Again, thanks for having me on, man. I wanted to discuss this passage because I feel
1: like in a culture, in a society, where we are celebrity-driven, we are, you know, fame-driven, we're money-driven, we're driven by so many things. I have a dear friend named Will Ford, He's been kind of like an uncle to me in many ways. And I remember being a young man, I was about 18 years old, and he used to tell me this, and it's over the years, it's become alive in my heart. He said, you know what, Rick, you cannot disciple a culture that has already discipled you. Interesting. And I said, man, that's really good. And I, I find First Samuel sixteen seven to kind of bring us back to the anchor of what God's heart is for humanity. I know many people listening may or may not be familiar with it, but if they're not, it's the passage when Samuel the prophet is going to find a king at Jesse's house. And as you guys and gals may not know the story, you know, he's looking through and all the brothers and this one's tall and handsome and this one's a, a dashing warrior, you know, and this one is that. And, this, and, and God speaks to the prophet Samuel's heart and said, hey, hey, remember this about me. I'm not looking at their outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. And this passage has so spoken to me. It's so inspired me over the years because I've seen this to be true in my own life. I've seen this to be true in many people's lives. And it's just like God to, to take somebody like a David who, it, it's assumed that he probably had some rejection issues, some family issues with his, his dad didn't even invite him into the house when Samuel came over to, to find the, the king, you know? Come on, boys. Come on in. Not you, David. You know,
0: you're good. Just stay out there with the sheep. And in the ancient world, the culture of the ancient world glorified primogeniture, which is that the privileges go to the firstborn chronologically. Yes. And one of the objectives of the Torah, of God in the Torah, is to constantly subvert that notion. And we see it all throughout the Torah, including now, because David, not only is he not the firstborn, he's the eighthborn. <laughs> yes.
1: He is the the most unassuming and literally, Jesse doesn't even think he's good enough to come into the house when the most famous prophet in the world comes to the door. Wow! And it's just like God to go, nope, it's not you, you, you. It's, it's actually this. The Bible literally says this. It's the man who I have found after my own heart. So uh, we could see even just from the very common timeline, you know, David didn't really get into the fullness of the kingship until he was about 30 years old. So by the time that Samuel had come around to the house, David was literally a young man, maybe 16 years old, maybe 17 years old. He was literally a teenager, and God saw a destiny. God saw a potential. God saw a future in this boy who his own father, his own brothers, and in my conviction, looking at this passage, possibly himself couldn't even see the destiny that was inside of him But one of the reasons why I wanted to look at this passage together with you, Mark, is because God, like you said, this is so like God to take the least likely and go, this is my choice. I saw inside of the heart. I don't see the accolades. And here in a moment, I want to even discuss the failures and not just the accolades, but the failures. God is actually looking supremely at the heart posture of humanity.
0: Right. He absolutely is. And we can just imagine David not even invited into the home. A teenage shepherd, and we could just imagine his brothers who were probably up into their early 30s, and they look like we would envision a young king looking like, and God says, I'm not looking for outward appearance. I'm looking in the heart, and that's my guy. I think it's very interesting to
1: me as well. So talking about looking at the heart, and this is why this was important to me, because not only does God see inside of our hearts, I'm a firm believer that God doesn't just see us where we are now. I believe that God, as the wonderful father that he is, sees us at our full potential. Mm. That's why God is committed to our process. God is committed to sticking with us, even through our failures, even through our successes. And David, I believe David saw this as he was a man after God's own heart. I believe that he was a man who loved the presence of God. If you kind of read between the lines there, you can see that David, as he's shepherding these sheep, he's playing his harp, he's practicing his slingshot, he's practicing in the natural, it would seem like it's just mediocre, just very simple things like, oh, he's just practicing a slingshot. But God was teaching him through the little things on how to be a wonderful king. And that's actually what made way for David to go, well, hey, this Goliath guy, he's not a big deal. I've already slain the lion. I've already slain the bear. And I've used the, the little thing that was in my hand. I became excellent at it. And perhaps God will actually anoint me to be powerful because I was faithful with little. I believe God's going to use me now because I was
0: faithful with little to, to be powerful with much. What well, you point out is so interesting. I, I had not thought of this, that what God sees in David is a young man who's practicing and who's improving himself. And in the book of Numbers, we are introduced to the worst Jew in the Torah, who is Korak, and he leads Korak's rebellion. And what qualifies him to be the worst Jew in the Torah is he says to Moses, all the people are holy. So why is that bad? Because God never said all the people are holy. He said, you shall be holy to me. Yes. Holiness is always an aspiration. It's always something to work on that we never achieve. And Korak, who said we are holy, in other words, if you are holy, you have nothing to work on, nothing to improve, you're there. Korak, the name in Hebrew means bald. And what grows on a bald head? Nothing. So nothing grows. But what you're pointing out is that what God sees in David, is a young man committed to growth, committed to improvement. Cause you just pointed out he's practicing his slingshot. He's practicing his music, whether it's the military arts, whether it's the pure arts, he's a young man who's always practicing, always self improving, never having arrived, much like God envisions, and the exact opposite of Korak. hundred
1: percent. And I mean, isn't this so like God to say, I'm gonna put a little seed on the inside of your hand. I'm under the conviction that God's job is to supply the seed or the promise, or the potential, but it's our job to supply the faithfulness, the practice, showing up every day, and being faithful with that little. And I think that's a gigantic part of our hearts even growing, is when we can set ourselves to be diligent when nobody's looking but the eyes of God. I believe that's a big part of why God found this man to be after his own heart.
0: So God, in your interpretation, he, what qualifies in God's mind, the person qualified to be the king, is the person who he sees is most dedicated to constantly and continually improving himself. And that's really what it means to have a godly heart. Improving yourself in every way. As you said, there wasn't one way he was improving himself. He's just improving himself.
1: Yep, he's just going for it. And here's the interesting part to me is this seed of potential grows so gigantic on the inside of David. Let's fast forward now to a later part in his life when he is very famous, he's very wealthy, He's a politician, he's a king, he's a father, he's all of these amazing things. And then one day, we all know the famous story, he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he falls into sin. What people don't understand sometimes is that the sin process that David went through was not just a one-time thing. This was months and months, because Bathsheba, her husband, is at war. And so David has to go through months' longer process of trying to hide this thing, of trying to hide all the sin that he went through. He wasn't just this, oops, I messed up, and then covers it and he repents and he gets better. He's going through months of sin process. And even through this process, God says, David, you're not defined by your accolades or your successes. By the way, you're also not defined by your failures. I still see into your heart. And I feel like this reality was very much so alive in David Because we see now in Psalm 27, 4, where it says, One thing have I asked, one thing do I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon his beauty, and inquire in his temple. Interesting to me that David, out of all the things he could be known for, mighty man of war, great musician, he was an inventor of instruments, he was a politician, a king, he was a fugitive, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, Mm -hmm. he's all of these things. But he said, I will not be defined by any of it. I will be defined by one thing, the time I spend in the Father's presence, I will gaze upon his beauty and I will inquire or talk to him. David said, I'll get my identity from the conversation that I have in the presence of the Father. This is so powerful.
0: Absolutely. Um, Now, moving from 16.7, where God qualifies David to be the king because David's improving himself. And by the way, you're so right about David and Bathsheba. All adultery involves that process. I mean, it's not like you're walking down the street and then all of a sudden you commit adultery. There's always a process, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. But even the short processes aren't so short. There's always a process. There's always plenty of time to stop. I suppose one of the lessons we learned from this story is that you're always either getting better or getting worse. In the beginning here, 16, 7, as you pointed out, he's getting better. And then, as you point out later on, he's falling into what turns out to be a catastrophic sin. Now, if we go to from um, sixteen seven, 7, uh, just down to 1 Samuel 16, 7 and 1 Samuel 16, 17, we learn about David's musical gifts. And I really want to get your understanding of that because you have such profound musical gifts yourself and you help the world to understand your faith through your musical expression, among other things, but you're known as being one of the great Christian musicians in the world. So let's just read this passage. This is Saul's 1 Samuel 16, 15. Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will be better. So what is it about the qualities or properties of music that you think that the prophet identifies here and that is so meaningful that it can cause people to feel better, to be better, and to remove the evil spirit of God.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's even science behind this, right? Like there are healing frequencies. I think that's too much to get into on, on this episode, maybe on another episode, but there are literally frequencies that are connected to Certain musical notes. They're not just called keys for a reason, like musical keys. I believe that they're healing keys and they unlock doors of healing, they unlock doors of prosperity. And so you see with David, again, to our first point, David was not known yet as this mighty man of valor. How was he first known? He was known because he practiced his instrument, and this is what brought him before kings. And so he became this skilled musician. And I think music is so powerful going along with our kind of narrative today of improving ourselves in all these different areas. Music is so powerful because with words alone, the only expression we can do with words is vocabulary and volume. Right. You know, we can either go louder or softer or have so much of a vocabulary. Interesting. But when you bring music into it, you bring rhythm, you bring harmony, you bring cadence, you bring emotion. You bring all of these other expressions into the heart. And so I feel like music and singing is so powerful because it is a way to gigantically amplify the expression of a person's heart, whether that's for good or for evil, but we can express, we can literally tap in to every single part of who a human is. And I I teach this a lot in our seminars and our courses, but music touches every single part of who a human is. Humans are made up of body, mind, and spirit, uh, spirit or, or you know, the, the supernatural, the, the eternal. So the rhythm, music is made up of three parts. It's rhythm, it's melody, and it's lyric. So I've seen a correlation. The rhythm affects the physical body.
0: Is that what makes you want to dance?
1: A hundred percent. There's actually a scientific term called the ecstasy of music, When you hear a rhythm, your foot instantly starts tapping many times subconsciously because your body naturally responds to, it's called the law of resonance as well. When you hear a certain rhythm, your body just goes into resonance and ecstasy. It connects with those frequencies. So the rhythm affects the physical body. The melody affects the soul, you know, the mind, will, and emotion. If you're in a major chord, you feel happy. If you're in a minor chord and going slow, it helps you grieve, or maybe it makes you feel sad or helps you process those emotions. And then the lyrics, they go to the spirit. The lyrics are, I believe, a lot of times they're what feeds us eternally. They're the theology behind what is inside of this expression that we call music. So very powerful correlation there with music and human experience. Whoever you are, wherever you live around the world, every human likes some kind of music whoever you are, wherever you are.
0: It's universal, absolutely, very interesting, right.
1: So music is exactly like what you said, music is this universal language, and it is ordained by God to to be a gigantic part of
0: our human experience. Right, and towards the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is really imparting the message to the Jews about how they should think about the Torah, how they should live the Torah, he says, write yourselves this song, He calls the Torah a song, write yourselves this song. This is how he wants us to experience the Torah. He could have chose anything. Yes. Any word, any scripture, write yourselves this song. Because everyone sings in a unique way. We might sing the same lyrics, we might sing the same melody, but everyone sings in a unique way. And And when you have a song, it's a fullness that comes through that doesn't come through in other media.
1: I just got done teaching this in one of the seminars we did this past week. I am so strongly convicted One of the reasons why God is so passionate about us expressing our heart and our worship to him through the place of song is because we see in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, that God is a singer. It says, he sings over me.
0: I didn't know that. Interesting.
1: He dances over me and he quiets me with his love. So. Uh god himself is a singer so why does he want us to express our love to him through song because he himself is a singer now do you have to sing in order to worship him no but i describe it like this is everybody a master barista no hmm. but can everybody pour a cup of coffee absolutely that's how it goes with singing our love and our worship expression to god as well
0: and i think your point before about the science is really profound Because i think one of the things um, that we're learning in the 21st century is proving the truth that the biblical author knew. So for instance, people who listen to music in an operating room report less discomfort during their procedure. And those who hear music in the recovery room request less opioid medication for their pain, which is exactly what David's saying here. Absolutely. There is the genius of God behind all of this music. I'm going to
1: tell you a quick story here. It's really cool. So years ago, he's passed away now, but Right at the end of his life, I had the honor of meeting the man who invented the, the compact disc. His name is David Vancouvering. you can look him up if you're listening. David Vancouvering. and he created the CD, the very first CD in the 60s for the U.S. military. He had the first one hanging on his wall. It's about as big as a record. I became friends with him, and I was over at his house one day, and he said, Hey, you're a musician, aren't you? And I said, Yes, sir. And he goes, he was also, if, if any musicians listening right now, he was the co-inventor of the Moog synthesizer. So if you've ever heard of the Moog, which is one of the most famous synthesizers out there, he was also the co-inventor of the Moog. So he's, he's a mad scientist who loves God. I'm at his house. He goes, hey, do you want to see something really interesting? It's in my basement, which is a pretty scary question to ask <laughs> for companies from this individual. You know, I'm like, well, I guess so. I go into his basement and he has this wonderful, absolutely splendid library it's like a museum of musical instruments that he has invented, that he's working on. One of the most incredible experiences that I've had as a musician. And I'm looking, I'm just agog, like, oh my gosh. And he goes, but let me show you my prized possession. And I'm tying this all together to what we're talking about, Mark. He pulls me over to the side, and here in the corner of his basement, he's got this very interesting, uh, kind of whimsical, strange-looking it's almost like a piano or a keyboard that's hybrid. So it's normal in the fact of it's got, you know, the white keys and the black keys left to right, but every single one of these keys is stair-stepped as well, going up as well. So it's like this seven-dimensional keyboard if you can imagine. And I go, what is this? And he said, well, are you familiar with quarter notes? And I said, yeah, absolutely. For those who are listening, you know, in the West, we, we're very familiar with da, 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 with a normal scale. But as you know, in Middle Eastern music and Indian music and much other music around the world besides Western, we love and we celebrate those quarter notes. You know, in between a note, da, da, there's so much tension in between those two notes. Da, 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 da. There's so many quarter notes in between these two notes. So, what David did is He split up the quarter notes by seven, put them into this beautiful piano. And I said, Dave, I can't even imagine what this is or why it is. Why did you do this? As incredible as it is, what's the purpose? And he said, well, everything has a frequency. And we know that through science, everything is a frequency. And he said, what I've done is I have taken the table of elements and I have pulled the frequencies of the table of elements. And I pulled them into some of these quarter notes here. He said, for instance... A lot of women struggle with iron deficiencies. He said, what's going to happen, Rick, when I give you one of these keyboards and you claim the frequencies of iron over somebody who's deficient in iron? You're going to see them get healed. And he was under the conviction of the, the idea of the story of Jericho. He said, could it be the way that this wall fell? He actually believed that the frequency, God knew the exact frequency of the shout of everything that had to do with Israel marching around the wall was the exact frequency that was needed to bring the wall down. So that was an, a wonderful experience I've had as a musician, seeing that, you know, it, it's just been incredible.
0: Wow. United Hatzalah did this uh, magnificent online fundraising event around a rendition of the famous Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. It was uh, in March. It was a beautiful rendition with lots of people singing. And it's just, uh, ever since then, I've been thinking about the initial lyrics of Hallelujah and I don't understand them. So maybe I'll read them and you'd understand them because it references the biblical David. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What do you think that means? I don't even know what the minor fall or the major lift would be. So I don't have any idea what that means. Sure, so it's actually a wonderful song. This is one of my favorite songs. I
1: love this song. And if you're a classically trained musician, you actually know exactly what it means. So in the first part of it, when I sing, but you don't even care for music, do you? I think that's him nodding his head towards the idea that David tapped into the idea that, wait, because if you remember before David showed up on the scene, the way that people would worship was to sacrifice goats, and lambs, and doves. But David saw past that and he goes, wait, wait, God actually doesn't want this kind of sacrifice. He desires a sacrifice of praise. So I, I believe that's the artist going, tipping his hat towards that reality. But whenever it's, it's talking about the fourth, the fifth, the major lift, that is literally the beauty and the cadence of playing a song. If you're a musician and you know, it's, some call it the Nashville number system or the natural number system. When you play certain numbers within the progression, they give a certain emotion and a certain feel. So when you go to the four, it drops. When you go to the five, there's some tension. When you go to the one, it lifts. So that's what the the artist is talking about there. It's it's a really cool concept, actually.
0: Yeah, he talks about when David played and it Pleased the Lord, and there was a secret chord. Did David have a secret chord, or is that uh, Leonard Cohen's imagination?
1: Well, this is also something that's very interesting, maybe for another episode, but um, there are many, there are some people that are in a camp that believes that David actually tuned his harp to a different frequency than what we tune our instruments to here in the West. We tune to our frequency here in the West and around the world, mostly. It's a frequency called 441. People believe that David actually tuned his harp to 444. So there is a circle of people who believe that the key of David was an actual key that he would tune to. And that was frequency 444. I actually have a lot of believers who musicians, Christian musicians, normal musicians who believe that 444 is a more healing and soothing frequency than 441.
0: Interesting. Moving from uh, Leonard Cohen to our trip to Israel, that was your first trip to Israel, right? We were there together about a year ago. Absolutely. Yep. How as, as a Christian and as a Christian leader and as a Christian music leader, what happened to you on that trip? What did that trip mean to you?
1: It was actually one of the most life-changing trips that I have ever experienced. And I think I shared this with you, Mark. I've had the honor of leading worship in almost 80 different nations, and 79 nations, actually. So I've been around the world. I'm pretty cultured, and I'm thankful for that. But man, going to Israel, and I can't say enough good things about Bishop Robert Stearns. I mean, I'm so glad that he connected
0: us. Such a wonderful man.
1: Incredible, incredible. And what I love about Robert, and I'm going to go back into your question here in a moment, but... Robert's ministry is so powerful because it's taking Christian guys like me and introducing them to the beauty of how Jews connect with with Yahweh, how Jews connect with God, how Jews connect with the Father. And so going there, it almost, you know, in Christian culture, and this is something that I think we need to see changed quite a bit in Christian culture there's this idea that Israel is kind of like this Disneyland or this Disney world. Like, Oh, we got to go to Israel because you know, that's where so much history. But I'll tell you, Mark, when I went and experienced Israel firsthand and saw how the Jewish culture connects with the father and saw how, Jewish culture worships. And even, I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit as well, but even the Jewish Jewish mindset when it comes to business and many different layers, it was literally one of the most life-changing trips for me. And I think that the punchline for me in that trip was, this is where the worship movement began, and this is where the global worship movement, Christian or Jew, this is where it will land again one day. And we'll be headquartered, you know, for eternity. It's wonderful, Israel. So I was just blown away, man. It changed my life a hundred million percent. And I'm telling all of my Christian worship friends that they all need to come and experience this for themselves because it was just
0: more than special. Wonderful. So uh, the final question is always moving from um, one text, the the Bible, to another text, which is um, Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he he says in the book, he said... um, I just ran into a, a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man saved a lot of Jews and then became a priest. And so I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned that everyone is much less happy than he seems and that there is no such thing as a grown up person. So Rick, you've been to 79 countries. You've founded and led global parachurch ministry. What are two things that you have learned about mankind in your journeys?
1: Man, what a question. One thing is that mankind deeply needs God. That is the foundational need of the human heart is we need God. We need the love of God to cause us to come alive, to teach us how to love others. We need God deeply. I think that's one thing that I've learned about mankind. And the other thing I've learned about mankind is the potential, bringing it back to the very first thing that we talked about on the show today, the potential of mankind is absolutely limitless if we're willing to apply ourselves and to be faithful every day and just keep showing up. The potential of mankind is limitless. It's just incredible. Who would have thought we'd be flying all over this rock and going to outer space and you know talking over technology the way that we are it's just incredible
0: absolutely or could you imagine telling uh, our great grandparents yeah i think i'll go to israel next weekend <laughs> right, right they right like what <laughs> yeah 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 uh, the state yeah. of israel and we're going to go to ir david and i mean inconceivable yes but we did 100 <laughs> percent. so rick thank you so much for uh, such a fascinating conversation i encourage everybody to uh listen to rick's music which is magnificent inspiring uplifting and uh just awesome so thank you
1: Thank you so much, Mark. I've been honored to be here on the show today. Really appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you.